You're always chasing after a deer Oh my dear Oh my dear Through the meadow I can hear my fears, oh my fears. Hello and welcome to episode 1151 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hello. Just before we started recording, I saw a rumor or Maybe it's news reported by Craig Mish, the host for Sirius XM, and it made me think of our buddy Laz from last week. <laughs> Evidently, according to a source, JT Realmudo has requested a trade from the Marlins, and wasn't he one of the ones that Laz is particularly attached to and was hoping would not go anywhere? And yep. uh, yeah, he wants to go somewhere. <laughs> so. Yeah, all of the good ones do. Why wouldn't they? I mean, no. yeah, sure. If, if you're if you're Christian Yelich, he's under the most control, right? He's got what five more years, four more years. I don't know, but Real Muto's got three, and I, the Marlins aren't going to be good in the next three years. It's almost impossible. They're bad. They're bad now, and they don't have a farm system. So the the thing here, I guess, is that Real Muto is still like a an arbitration eligible player you don't often see players like yeah. this demanding or i don't know if it's demanding or requesting if there's a some sort of thin line between them i guess but there were the reports last week that the marlins were going to talk to christian yelich and get his opinion <laughs> and we uh, already we can we can assume what his opinion would be on sticking around but at least there like yelich has signed a long-term contract he's made a commitment to an organization that has now deviated from the plan that i assume they told yelich would be in place so yelich would be given some amount of rights i guess i don't know he has a stake in the franchise so to speak but real mm-hmm. muto is just a team control player and yep. if even he is like <laughs> please please cut me loose then like where does it end can dan straley be like put me on waivers could adam conley be like just lock my just like remove my locker from the clubhouse and just let me go like i'll just live on the streets like what if jt real muto can ask his way out where who couldn't ask their way out I mean, in theory, the longer you're under team control, the more eager you should be to get out. (laughs) Because in this case, (laughs) the team is the Marlins. So the longer your your future with the Marlins stretches out in front of you, the more incentive you should have to get out of there. If you're a year away from free agency or something, you might also want to leave, but at least you could stick it out and be gone one way or another. But if you're Real Muto, you've got to say something or you'll be stuck there for three years. So... (laughs) Evidently, he wants out. Yelich wants out. Ken Rosenthal confirms that a source confirms that Realmudo wants out. So, Laz, it is not too late, buddy. You can get out, too. You don't even have to request a trade to another fan base. You can just start following another team. But I guess he can't. He is too loyal. That is That's what the makes problem. Laz Laz. Yeah. You can't ask out of a loyalty. And for the players, this is not a loyalty. This is a business partnership. You have to feel for Don Mattingly, who signed with the team and what he assumed was in a very different position. But instead, Don Mattingly is going to go into next season. And who's going to be the best? Who do you think will be the best player on the Marlins <laughs> next on, on opening day? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Justin Let's, Bohr, uh... if he's even there. <laughs> yeah, right? Because why wouldn't he 
ask out. Okay, l- let's look at let's look at this. The current best Marlin, which unsurprisingly is Christian Yelich, he's projected at four wins above replacement. Mm-hmm. Second place, JT Realmoto, two point eight. Yeah. Third place, oh no. Uh, uh, Justin Bohr, 1.9. <laughs> Will Justin Bohr, because uh, what's Justin Bohr's service time situation is such that he is a free agent in three years. Yeah. So he's like Real Muto. He's right. already arbitration eligible. You mm-hmm. could ask out. He's a big, powerful first baseman who's underrated because of where he's playing. So then the best player would be Dan Straley or Dylan Peters. Oh, that's an unusual. I wasn't expecting to look at that projection, but in any case, will the Marlins on opening day? <laughs> they have any? Will the Marlins have a player projected at two wins above replacement? <laughs> so even Bohr is not. So you not not according to Steamer. So Yelich and Realmuto are the only ones who are. Yeah, and maybe you think when the Zips projection folds in or mm. whatever that things will change. But I mean, the answer is almost certainly got to be. No, yeah. right? If it's just so. Yelich and Real Muto? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, get out of there, Les. Get out of there. <laughs> oh, man. I know we've talked about the Marlins a lot this winter, but it's just one of these slow-burning fires that keeps getting harder and harder to look away from, so we keep having to return to it. Anyway... In other, perhaps more nope. exciting nope. and happy nope. news. No, you can't move on yet. You can, <laughs> no. We're not done here. More Marlins? <laughs> no, more Marlins. Okay. Right now, right now, as built, the Marlins are projected to say, you're trying to move on from the Marlins, please. <laughs> Marlins are projected at 72 wins right now. They won 77 games last year. That was with, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, Marcelo Zuna, good players. So they're projected at 72. How many games do you think the Marlins will win next season? <sighs> not as built, but as you think they'll be built. Right. So. 62. All right, 61. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's hard to project a team to be a lot worse than that, unless it's like a replacement level 2003 Tigers type team, and there (laughs) are not a lot of those. So, yeah, I'm going to say low 60s, I guess. That is, that's sad. Laz, again, go. Go. All right. So, (laughs) what I wanted to bring up to you, I'm going to send you a link. This is something that I discovered last week. I think it was tweeted to the Effectively Wild Twitter account, at EWPod. And we've got a new development in the bat boning space. There is a new innovation. No longer will bats be boned. They will be antler rubbed. This is new. Did you get my link? Yaya Baseball? Yes. So apparently there is a... Bat manufacturer named Yaya Baseball. This is, I think, the only bat manufacturer in Europe. So, you know, if you're playing in Europe, there are a lot of teams and people who play baseball in Europe, and you don't want to have to import your bat. You go to Yaya Baseball, which I believe was started by an American, but it is a Slovakian bat manufacturer. And not a whole lot of baseball in Slovakia. I found an interview with the maker of these bats at bat flips and nerds and not a lot of baseball in Slovakia but there is a lot obviously elsewhere in Europe and there wasn't really a bat manufacturer so Yaya Baseball it's a custom made bat company and you can customize your model and size and handle and all of that but another thing that differentiates Yaya from everyone else antler rubbed baseball bats so I am now reading from their Instagram where they announced this introducing our newest feature added to each player's bat antler rubbing 
The process of rubbing a bat compresses the wood on the barrel in order to make it more dense. The denser wood will ensure that the bat will not splinter or flake as quickly, providing more durability to the bat, and the ball will come off the bat at a higher speed. For the rubbing, we pass the bat through a lathe equipped with deer antlers. This makes for a high-quality and efficient process. And there are pictures of a bat being antler-rubbed. It's just an antler stuck onto like a black metal and plastic thing, and a bat right under it being rubbed, being caressed by this antler. So what do you think? Would you rather have a bat that is boned or antler rubbed? Well, I guess we does it work? Does it not? We should consult with the divine secrets of the yaya antler rubbing process. Yeah. Ugh. Bone and antler are made of similar material. Yeah. Is yeah. this just calcium, right? Mm-hmm. Cal- uh, so you're essentially rubbing. Do you... You kill a deer when you get the antlers, right? That's like what you, I was just you, wondering. I don't know why you would have let's, to. <laughs> okay, let's let's solve this now so that we don't get a bunch of emails yeah. from <laughs> hunter listeners. Probably okay, because that would change my answer about <laughs> about whether I recommend antler rubbing or not. I don't okay, know. I don't know what to Google, so I'm going to try deer <laughs> antlers kill. <laughs> okay, I don't know why you'd have to kill it to get the antler. It doesn't seem like any vital organs would be located up there. I guess it would be embarrassing to not have antlers if you're a deer and maybe if you're the kind of creature that has to butt heads and antlers with other creatures maybe it would put you at something of a disadvantage not to have them but uh can't say i know from personal experience there's a there's a question here why do deer antlers fall off that's promising if they just fall off <laughs> yeah, then maybe that you sounds don't. good <laughs> maybe i'm already doing this wrong because i searched for deer antlers instead of buck antlers <laughs> Look, okay, forget it. I'm not going to try to do this on the podcast. I don't know if you have to kill the animal to get at the antlers. If you don't, that would be super because, I mean, you know, right. bones come from the dead. Yeah, bones or, you kind of do Or you just dismember to. the cow. I don't know. You just, like, leave a cow with three legs. That would be even worse. Right. Well, I can tell you that the deer antler rubbing is more Instagrammable. It has a more, <laughs> I don't know, authentic feel to it. The The color of the antler is mm-hmm. uh, is more striking than an ordinary, like, bleached bone. Mm-hmm. So it makes for a better image. But, mm-hmm. you know, the process is still silly and yeah. questionable. But yeah. I don't know. It's been going on for <laughs> so long. The lathe is clever. The antler has a natural bend to it. Mm-hmm. That uh, that just allows the bone to fit right in there in the little crook, <laughs> yeah, right? So uh, and look, they even have a a logo up here of with antlers and two different fonts, which is weird. That just says antler rubbed right up there in the corner of the image. So this is clearly like going to be a big part, if not the core part of their marketing process. They're just gonna slap antler rubbed. This is probably gonna be a brand that you're gonna see on the bats. I'm going to guess because it looks like something you just like singe into the bat, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, I don't know, some player, let's call him uh, Didi Gregorius, will pick up a bat next year and he'll be like, see, these are antler rubs. <laughs> right. I'm going to hit 30 dingers. <laughs> so, good news, I'm on DeerFarmer.com. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the authority on this issue. And I found a post entitled, Antlers. To cut or not to cut, which implies that there is an option to cut and an option not to cut. So when raising whitetails, the decision to cut the antlers off your bucks every year should be strictly one of management and economics. So you can cut your antlers off your whitetails. It's evidently a pretty complex decision here. It is easier said than done. 
according to DeerFarmer.com. It doesn't sound like it would be easily done, so I'm not surprised about that. But let's see. We've got some more info on here. Why cut antlers? And the reason is because these animals carry weapons on their heads that are triggered by testosterone. We all know how explosive and unpredictable that can be. Mother Nature has made it that way to preserve the strength in the genetic pool. There is no way man will ever or should ever attempt to breed these instincts out of these animals. However, you can remove the antlers. Disarming these critters of their deadly weapons is the only safe way. And so the cutting procedure allows you to be able to match the antlers to the buck without having to go and search them in the pastures and then use DNA. This is important when keeping antler growth records for management and marketing purposes. So lots of good reasons to de-antler your deer apparently here. And evidently it worked out for the author of this post. The first year we had no losses. And then the next year... I lost four bucks out of 32 to puncture wounds. Ooh. Well, anyway, it's not perfect, I guess, but when you have puncture wounds in your deer, you want to cut the antlers. So you can cut the antlers. I don't know exactly what the process is here, but it is possible. So maybe you can get the antlers without having to kill the deer, and you can't get bones without having to kill whatever had the bones. So that's one reason to go with antler rubbed over bone rubbed. (laughs) That's... uh, that's all I got. But I mean, anyway. presumably you would have to tranquilize a deer, a buck, yeah, whatever, right. in order to remove. But can you imagine, you're just walking around, you're a deer, you're just walking around, you get shot by a dart, you're like, what's going on? <laughs> and then you, you wake up and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my head feels a little lighter. But you can't, you can't know that you're antler. You can't, as a as a buck, I imagine you can't see them. I don't know, maybe they have good vision <laughs> above their heads, but yeah, you know, that in... In your peripheral vision, if they're yeah, big enough, it's possible. Or maybe you—I don't know—do they do they recognize a reflection if they look in like a a window or a pond? <laughs> I don't know enough. Of, I know when I had a bird. Yeah, I don't think that he knew that that bird in the mirror was him. I think that he yeah. thought I have a friend, and my mm-hmm. friend seems to do things that are very similar to me. But <laughs> right. if you're a deer and you don't have antlers. But then another deer wants to fight you, and he mm-hmm. does have antlers. Do you think that you can fight the deer with antlers when mm. your antlers have been removed? Right. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. But... Okay. We're still going to open up ourselves to a lot of deer-related <laughs> emails here. But you know what? If it turns out we need farmer. it. Every time we've talked about some obscure profession on this podcast, we get like 10 emails from (laughs) listeners who do that thing. So like when we talked about professional organists and and what they make, we got lots of emails from organists. So I can only imagine that there is a deer farmer listening to this right now, possibly removing antlers. If so, please give us a call, drop us a line, let us know about this process. But anyway, I think that... uh, We have found out about as much as we can on this subject live, and all you need to know is that antler rubbed is an option if you want it. So we've got a few baseball moves to talk about. I suppose we've got a CC Sabathia signing, which maybe we don't have a whole lot to say about. It's one year, it's $10 which is uh, pretty good deal for CC Sabathia, right? That seems to be something of a hometown discount, I would say. C. Sabathia, pretty effective pitcher in his new incarnation. So presumably he wanted to stay. Yankees wanted him to stay. Where do you think the Yankees are as a team right now? Because I was listening to the podcast the other day, which is great. One of my favorite podcasts. And it was their reaction to the Giancarlo Stanton trade. 
and they were treating the Yankees as if they were just this unstoppable juggernaut now that can't be beaten and can hardly be competed with and our only hope is that the Astros and the Indians might take them out in October and that's part of the bit they're both professed self-professed Yankee haters and enjoy sort of wallowing in Yankee hatred and resignation to the Yankees being great but I don't really think of the Yankees as that sort of unstoppable force yet. In fact, I was kind of expecting that if anything, they might take a slight step back this year. Now, maybe not now because they have Giancarlo Stanton and because... You know, they also underperformed what seemed to be their true talent last year, or if not their true talent, at least their runs scored and runs allowed. And so you figure maybe even if they'd drop back a bit because of some guys who had huge years kind of out of nowhere, they might also get a bit of a boost by just not having bad sequencing. So I could see them being good, certainly even before the Stanton trade, and the Stanton trade helps, but I don't think of them as like a shoe-in the way that I think of the Astros and the Indians right now. Am I am I underestimating them? No. I think that they're they're good. They're clearly a strong team. They're one of the, I don't know, five or six best teams in baseball, but you'd look at this team and they're still starting Brett Gardner. Aaron Hicks I like, but you know, he's not a force. They're Current second base and third base situation seems to be Miguel Andujar and Ronald Torres, and eventually Glaber Torres will show up, but he's not probably going to be great right away. Greg Bird certainly hasn't proven himself at first base. There are reasons to be skeptical of Didi Gregorius as a power hitter, so it goes on and on. But if you look at this team, I think this could be a 100-win team if you look at it and you think Aaron Judge is for real. He really is something like last year's version of Aaron Judge. Giancarlo Stanton really is healthy and better now that he strikes out less often. And if you buy completely into Luis Severino as being like one of the 10 best pitchers in the game, then you could look at this team and think that team has star power like nobody else. That's just a really incredible ball club, but it doesn't really work like that. Stanton could get hurt. Judge could take a big step back. Judge probably will take a big step back, and Greg Bird hasn't proved. I'm just going over the same points over and over again, but this this is a good team, and right now, uh, according to Steamer, the Yankees project at 91 wins, and Steamer is a pretty conservative projection system, at least I think. Mm. It tends to regress players fairly heavily, and I think that Zips does the opposite. For anyone who doesn't know, the eventual Fangraphs projections are a 50-50 blend of the Steamer and Zips projection systems. Right now, it is only Steamer that you'll find on the website. So right now, the Yankees are projected to be as good as the Nationals and the Red Sox. They are all basically tied for being the fifth best teams in baseball. They are a few wins in front of the Cardinals and a few wins in front of the Angels. The Angels do not yet have a Shohei Otani projection in there, but I would just think that we're going to have about eight or nine good baseball teams this coming season, and then one or two more will make the playoffs, and you should pity them, but the Yankees are good, but I don't think that they're better than the Cubs, Indians, Dodgers, or Astros. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how I was thinking of it, too. Of course, there's still time for them to improve and add pitching and they're certainly going to hit a ton of home runs but I don't think they've reached that juggernaut level yet I mean they are a juggernaut in a larger sense and they might make the playoffs for the next decade but I don't think of them as unstoppable in 2018 at least so speaking of the Otani projection I was just reading an article by Jim Allen in the Kyoto News he is uh, an excellent writer about Japanese baseball and Buried at the end of this article, which is about how the Angels persuaded Otani to sign with them. And by the way, I still don't exactly know. I still don't <laughs> understand. Like, clearly, Billy Epler 
seemed to convey the Angels' experience very well and really sold it from like a player's perspective in the Angels' organization and made it very easy to envision for Otani what it would look like to be on the Angels. And clearly he just felt some kind of connection with the Angels or with the people on the Angels he spoke to, but it's still not entirely clear exactly what he was thinking when he picked the angels anyway that's fine it's nice to have it be a mystery and to have someone go to the non-obvious destination anyway at the end of this article about otani there's a quote from an anonymous scout it is a former major league scout and so the paragraph setting up says Because Otani is so young and will be seeing Major League pitching and throwing off Major League mounds for the first time, expectations need to be tempered, a former Major League scout said Monday. Quote, a season in which Otani bats 230 with eight home runs and has an ERA over four should be considered a success, the scout said, citing figures similar to those Otani achieved as a rookie with Nippon Ham in 2013. I'm gonna break this to you anonymous scout no one would consider that a success (laughs) whether they should or not there is zero chance that anyone in the world including otani i'm gonna guess would consider that a success and i mean sure he's a rookie again in a sense but he was an 18 year old rookie when he was 2013 with nippon him and he is a 23 year old rookie in 2018 so it's not quite the same and sure he'll have some growing pains and adjustments to make but i mean especially the era over four part i think would be considered widely disappointing just because we've seen japanese pitchers come over and do better than that and he seems to have stuff that matches up well with any of them so i think if that happened and he also sort of struggled offensively i think that would be looked at as you know not like a a bust exactly he'd have many more years to prove himself but a disappointment for sure yeah it would depend on how he got to the era over four the following are some pitchers last season who finished with eras beginning with four Mm -hmm. chris archer jose quintana jeff samarja michael waka trevor bauer garrett cole and patrick corbin so Mm -hmm. not those are all good pitchers all of them three wins above replacement or better according to fan graphs i think there is one way that well okay there are two ways that shohei otani could end up with an era over four and still be considered a success one mm-hmm. the era just doesn't match up with his peripherals and he has a bunch of strikeouts and he right. just you know gets a little unlucky and two the home run spike continues it flourishes <laughs> and the league era is like five and a half and then all yeah. of a sudden the cy young winners are at like three nine or three eight and right. you know I don't know if it's going to go like that. It probably won't go like that, but we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen the home runs next season. Weren't there just like 600 more home runs hit than yep. before? Mm-hmm. So the league, let's just let's just take a little gander right here. The league average ERA in baseball last season was 4.36. The season before that, 4.19. Season before that, 3.96. Season before that, 3.74. You would always assume that this is going to stabilize. I don't know if it actually will. And if I look just at starting pitchers, it's gone up from 3.82 to 4.49. And that's just over the span of 2014 to 2017. So, you know, if you project this forward, if the runs keep appearing because the home runs keep flying over the fence, you could see a a starting pitcher at average ERA next season of like 4.6 or 4.7. And all of a sudden, an ERA of about four, it doesn't really look that bad. It actually looks pretty good, all things considered. That could still be I mean, what if we're going to do if we're going to set the the ERA at 4.65. So 
that would mean that Otani, if he had an ERA of four, would still be 14% better than average, which is pretty strong. That's like a legitimate number two starting pitcher. So uh, in that sense, former major league scout, you're not (laughs) completely incorrect, but one should also wonder why he is a former major league scout. (laughs) Right, because he he just had too low expectations for everyone. <laughs> he just gave everyone great grades when they yeah. had really lazy seasons. <laughs> Don't draft this guy. Don't draft this guy. Don't draft this guy. Who do you want to draft in the first round? No one. You know what? Nobody's good. Or draft everyone because they hit 230 and hey, that's pretty good. Or that one. <laughs> yeah, this or... guy's an eight home run ceiling. Pick him first. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the big trade, the small trade. Depends how you look at it. It was either very consequential or totally inconsequential. Trade that happened this Saturday, we both wrote about it over the weekend. And it's definitely an intriguing trade. So this was, of course, the double salary dump. And it was one where everyone in the trade, well, almost everyone in the trade was famous, was a former all-star, had MVP votes at some point in their career, etc., but has fallen on much harder times. So this was Dodgers and Braves, and of course the Braves' new GM, Alex Anthopoulos, was himself very recently a Dodger, which helped facilitate this swap. But Dodgers get their old buddy Matt Kemp back. The Braves get Adrian Gonzalez, who has already been designated for assignment, Brandon McCarthy, Scott Kazmir, Charlie Culberson, and $4.5 million. So between the people in this trade, there are a lot of career accolades and accomplishments, but between the people in this trade, there is 0.7 Fancraft's war in 2017. (laughs) That is what they produced collectively. Almost all of it from Brandon McCarthy. And in 2011, these guys produced 26 times that. (laughs) So (laughs) they were very good six years ago or so, but not so much anymore. They are all shadows of their former selves. And this is sad. And it made me think morbid thoughts and about how disposable we all are and inevitably are headed downhill. And six years from now, we'll all just be salary dump candidates but anyway that's what happens in sports and this one's fascinating because it's cash neutral essentially or close to it because Kemp is making a lot of money over the next two years and so the Dodgers are taking on uh, you know over 40 million dollars to have Kemp but it's split down the middle 2018 and 2019 whereas everyone that the Dodgers sent to the Braves except Culberson, who's, you know, making the league minimum essentially and and will be under team control for a while. Everyone else is also expensive, is making like $50 combined this year or 2018, but is a free agent after that. So it's cash neutral, but it's a swap of 2018 salary commitments for 2018 and 19 salary commitments that are not as steep in either one of those years. So... I know we both wrote about the luxury tax implications here and probably had to refresh our memories on percentages and taxes, and it gets very complicated at a certain point. But do you want to run through the 
broad strokes motivations for this deal? The Dodgers want to get under the competitive balance tax or more familiar luxury tax threshold for the season ahead. They want to do so so that they can reset their penalties. They have paid a luxury tax penalty for five consecutive seasons. Mm -hmm. And that means that uh, whenever 30 million this year, something a little more than that, maybe. Yeah, they have paid substantially a luxury tax for five consecutive seasons. And that means that as soon as you go over the limit for three years in a row, which again, the Dodgers have already done, you are paying a minimum. Minimum of 50% tax on all of your overage over the limit. So if the Dodgers were able to get under the limit for one season, you just need to reset for one season, then that 50% minimum penalty turns into a 20% minimum penalty, which is less. Mm -hmm. That is what the Dodgers are looking at. So the threshold for the season ahead is $197 million for payroll plus benefits. I never know exactly how much the benefits are. I've, I think it's like $14 million or something total. Mm-hmm. So it's something that people tend to leave out of their payroll calculations when you just use like Spotrack or mm-hmm. COTS contracts. But in any case, the Dodgers just want to get under the limit for one season so that when they move forward and they look at 2019, I think the, the tax threshold moves up to $206 million for next season. And importantly, as you've probably heard, next season's free agent market is going to be wild. And one of the players who might become a part of it is Clayton Kershaw, who has an opt-out So the Dodgers will be thinking about signing Clayton Kershaw to a new and large contract, and they could sign Bryce Harper, or they could try to sign Bryce Harper, I should say. Harper has some agency in this. But Manny Machado looks like he'll be a free agent. Josh Donaldson looks like he'll be a free agent. Lots of really good players are going to be out there on the free agent market. One of the uh, possibilities that has been floated before is that the Yankees will still sign Bryce Harper and maybe trade Giancarlo Stanton to the Dodgers, which would maybe make all parties involved quite pleased. So the Dodgers are thinking they're going to spend a lot in 2019 and beyond. And as a way to reduce their tax burden, they figured, well, this will be an opportunity for us to reset the penalty. Long story short, we can't run the specific numbers on exactly how much the Dodgers will be saving, but they will be saving several millions of dollars in tax penalties, probably into the eight figures. And this isn't just a a one-time benefit because it will take some years for the tax penalty to go back up to 50%, assuming the Dodgers continue to outspend the tax. And so they will save money in 2018. They will save money in 2019. They'll save money in 2020, et cetera. There's one, one delightful little thing that I'm not sure if this is true or not, but But when the Dodgers traded Matt Kemp to the Padres in 2014, the Dodgers agreed to pay $32 million of Kemp's remaining $107 million commitment. So... The Dodgers paid $18 million of Kemp's 2015 salary that's already done, and then they agreed to pay $3.5 million in 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019. What mm-hmm. I don't know is how those arrangements are spelled out in the actual trades, because I don't know if that means the Dodgers are paying the Padres specifically to pay down Matt Kemp, or if the Dodgers are just paying the Padres this amount of money under the assumption the Padres will have Kemp on the books. So I don't know if the Dodgers are now still going to pay the Padres $3.5 million in each of the next two years for Matt Kemp, even though the Dodgers now have Matt Kemp, which would right. mean they're, in a sense, kind of double paying for Matt Kemp, because then <laughs> that $3.5 million would be on top of the $21.5 million Kemp is already under contract for. So Cots Contracts has removed that Kemp $3.5 million from its spreadsheet. I don't know. I trust them more than I trust myself. So I would assume the way that this works is that the Dodgers no longer have to pay that money, but I really don't know. 
it's mm-hmm. it's possible. Yeah, of course, Kemp will probably not be on the Dodgers when next season starts. We'll see, but odds are they'll either designate him for assignment, just like the Braves did with Gonzalez, or they will try to package him with a prospect and get some of his salary off the books. Maybe just he doesn't really fit on their team, doesn't really fit on any team for that matter, but (laughs) he'd fit a bit better on an AL team just because he is the worst outfielder in baseball literally at this point and also seems to be one of the worst base runners in baseball maybe two and was a league average hitter last season exactly so if that's what he is that's not really anything that anyone would want (laughs) but maybe he could hit a bit better than that and if you dh him he doesn't cost you quite as much elsewhere so yeah so the interesting thing is here that we know that the Dodgers are determined to get under this limit. And I think it's still $197 million for next year. And then it goes up to 206 in 2019, then 208, 210. But this is since the 2002 CBA. So I think starting in 2003, there's been an annual limit, a luxury tax limit that functions as sort of a soft cap. But that cap has gotten harder and harder over the years. And so teams were routinely exceeding that luxury tax limit. And so that's when they made the 50% penalty, the new maximum that you could get. But next year, as part of the CBA that was agreed to last winter, but this part of it has not gone into effect until next year, when it will, there's going to be an additional tax on top of that 50% if you're above a certain threshold. So if you spend more than $217 million on payroll and benefits next year, then you pay an additional 12% on any amount over that limit in addition to the 50% or whatever you're paying on anything over 197 and then if you spend more than 237 million which the Dodgers have done for three consecutive seasons they were at like 241 this past year any team over 237 pays an additional 45% on any amount beyond that so if you are a three-time offender like the Dodgers are and you're over 237 then you're paying like a 95% tax i think on any dollar over that so clearly there are reasons why you would want to get under this thing and it's not only that but it's also a draft pick penalty that comes into effect next year and it's not that severe but it's just any team over that 237 number if you have a whatever your first pick in the amateur draft is falls 10 spots so like the Dodgers have the 30th pick in next year's draft so presumably they would just lose their first round pick essentially it would just like fall down to 40th pick early in the second round something like that so you know that's probably only worth like a couple million dollars of difference or something but still that's something so there are all these harsher measures that have been put in place either to try to ensure competitive balance if you want to kind of take MLB's word for it or to suppress player salaries which is certainly also part of it the thing that I can't quite figure out is how much of it is that how much of it is these new stricter taxes and penalties that are going into effect that is contributing to the Dodgers and the Yankees really making a concerted effort to getting under these limits as opposed to past years when they've tried to or said they would try to but not really tried that hard. Now they both seem to be pretty committed to that. Is that because of these stricter limits or is it because of the 2018 
2019 free agent class, which, as you mentioned, could include Kershaw and will almost certainly include Harper and Machado and other guys, too, like Josh Donaldson is is in that class. That class isn't quite as impressive as it looked a while ago because some guys have either signed extensions or just dropped off a bit. But, you know, it's still those those big three and Donaldson and Charlie Blackman, etc. So is it that these teams are preparing to spend a lot then or is it that they are actually deterred? by these penalties that MLB has put in place. I would assume it is that they're planning to spend a lot. And so I don't know. I don't know exactly what the savings would come out to because we can't just project what a payroll would be. But I guess you could... I think Jeff Passan was running through some math on Twitter yesterday that if you if you figured the Dodgers were going to run a payroll of, I don't know, $250 million in two seasons. And I think the way that it worked out for him is that they would save something like 10 or 12 million dollars if they were able to reset the penalty which is pretty substantial but i mean look i don't know exactly what the motivation is the correct answer is probably that it's a little bit of both but we know that the yankees and dodgers can both afford to pay overage they've been doing it for a while they are Mm -hmm. two of the richest franchises in north america but this is also an opportunity for both of them they have a lot of cost controlled talent on the rosters that it's not like they have to lose a whole lot right in order to drop below. I mean, you look at what the Yankees have done, and they're a very good team right now. Uh, the Dodgers just lost a bunch of <laughs> minimally valuable players in order mm-hmm. to drop below the threshold. So it's it's relatively, it's a painless way. It's a relatively painless way to save money. And I guess we haven't talked about the Braves' motivation here, which is fairly straightforward. The Braves mm-hmm. this season are bad, so they're going to pay more in exchange for clearing the books for 2019. So now mm-hmm. Matt Kemp and all his money is off the books for 2019. The Braves are going to end up in a situation somewhat similar to the Phillies, although less so now, I guess, that the Phillies are spending, but the Braves have very few future commitments, which just means that they're going to have a lot of money to spend next season. Mm -hmm. And for their sake, hopefully next season they look better. Hopefully some of their pitchers finally develop and hopefully Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna and and Dansby Swanson look good and establish themselves in the major leagues so for the Braves this is really quite simple for them to do I'm sure that part of the reason this happened is because Anthopoulos was just in the Dodgers front office so he kind of knew what the Dodgers wanted to do and there was a there was a a fan graphs chatter a few weeks ago I should have mentioned this who proposed uh, right. yeah. uh on the fly uh, on December 8th in my fan graphs chat there was a, a user named Tom who floated the idea of a Kemp for Casimir and Gonzalez trade. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, I wish that I didn't put this in the chat. I wish I didn't <laughs> accept this from the queue because this is complicated. This is going to take me a few minutes to think through. And the more I thought about it, the more reasonable it sounded. And then I, I included that in my write-up on the trade this weekend. And Tom uh, left the first comment in the thread and said he's actually been thinking about this trade for a couple of months. And he linked to a post he wrote on some message board from, I think it was October, that was floating the idea of a Kemp for a Casimir and Gonzalez trade. So there are a few teams who would be willing to offer the Dodgers this kind of relief and few teams who would have that kind of exchange contract available but the Braves and Dodgers lined up made great sense there's absolutely I I don't I guess the only thing you could say is maybe the Braves didn't get enough for kind of letting the Dodgers off the hook but I don't think that there's any loser in this trade mm-hmm. pretty much every single party gets what they want except for yeah. Matt Kemp who doesn't know who or where he'll be playing Right. Yeah. And I mean, the Braves, you know, they could use a couple starters or possible starters more than the Dodgers could probably at this point. They went into last year with some veteran guys, Cologne and Jaime Garcia and R.A. Dickey and Cologne and and Garcia are gone and Dickey's a free agent. So 
you know, they have a bunch of 20-something guys, some of whom seem to be good, some of whom unclear, so they could use Brandon McCarthy and Kazmir if he pitches. So, yeah, I see why it makes sense. And and right, it's not like the Dodgers are hurting themselves here to get under this limit. It's not like they're really making any sort of sacrifice in the short or long term. They just didn't really need anything this winter, and they might need something next winter. They might need Clayton Kershaw. So, you can see why they would do this, and I guess that's the thing. Like, I've seen a lot of sort of hand-wringing about moves like this or like the luxury tax keeping Dodgers or Yankees spending down. I, I guess the concern is that, well, if teams are really adhering to this limit, then players are not going to get paid and their share of the revenue in Major League Baseball is going to keep falling as it has, especially if you count things like, you know, ML BAM and revenue that is not maybe directly related to the sport. So that's a concern, I guess, except that if teams are so rich and they're making so much money, then even as these penalties get a little stricter, they still shouldn't care that much, right? Like if the Dodgers, I think Jeff Passan tweeted something about how like the Yankees bring in half a billion dollars in revenue every year and the Dodgers are close to that. So, I mean, how much of a difference does whatever it is, 20 million, 30 million, less, more, it seems like those teams would still be very profitable, even if they were incurring the maximum penalties here. And if incurring the maximum penalties meant building a playoff team, a World Series team, then that probably pays for itself. So I don't know that you can make the argument that on the one hand, teams are super profitable and these limits are keeping players from sharing in that profit, but then also make the argument that these limits are actually incentivizing teams not to spend because if they're so rich, then they should just continue to blow by the limits. Well, I guess what business has ever not cared about saving as much money as possible, even when mm-hmm. it's a very successful business? I mean, if you were given the option of being the Dodgers on Friday and being the Dodgers now, well, the Dodgers now are in a better position tax-wise, and they didn't lose anything really in terms of on-the-field talent. Maybe a little bit of rotation depth is missing, but other than that, what what business would think, well, who cares about saving 5 or $10 million? That's 5 or $10 million. You can do a lot with five or ten million dollars if if you're a billionaire so yeah the the dodgers and the yankees could i don't know where the uh the theoretical limit is for them to maintain profitability or at least breaking even and still have a payroll maybe it's 300 million dollar payroll maybe it's 400 million dollar payroll i really don't know it would be hysterical if they tried i wouldn't mind if it happened for one season and then we could go back to normal i wouldn't mind it if it were an experiment just to see what would happen mm-hmm. this is not the market to be trying to do that because there's just not that many right. good players out there but you you know, next year, a team could sign Machado for shortstop, Donaldson for third base, Kershaw for pitcher, Harper for right field, and you could just keep going and figure, well, we're just going to build this whole team through free agency. But yeah, I, I would imagine that the ownership groups also feel maybe a, I don't know how, how tangible it is, but a certain amount of pressure to try to be reasonable. I'm sure Manfred, Commissioner Manfred, doesn't want teams just blowing past the cap over and over and over again. Now, mm-hmm. maybe that does work to keep down wages, which is not ultimately a great thing for, for the sport, but I don't think that baseball wants to have teams that are running payrolls that look as outlandish as the Yankees payroll did 15 or 20 years ago. So there is some amount of psychological pressure, I'm sure, for these teams to keep 
payrolls reasonable. But yeah, I think ultimately it just comes down to businesses are greedy and they like to save money when they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure how much this is a blip and how much this is a sign of things to come. It could just be a confluence of factors like the Yankees and Dodgers not really feeling like they need to spend a ton this offseason and they're not being a ton to spend on and then next winter there will be and so teams are trying to save their money for that so I don't know how much of it is just kind of a temporary thing where they're going to try to get under this limit reset their tax rates and then come back with a vengeance after that or whether we really will see this function as sort of a salary cap going forward. I'm not sure. I'm I'm reserving judgment, but I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that penalties are actually getting stricter, and so this is working as intended to some extent, I suppose. How did Scott Kazmir... So Scott Kazmir did not win the 2013 Comeback Player of the Year Award, hmm. which is surprising to me, I guess, because in 2011, Scott Kazmir threw 1.2 major league innings, and in 2012, he threw not any at all. Then he came back, and he made 29 starts, and he was good. So Scott Kazmir, so this defeats the purpose of my subsequent question, because I thought that Kazmir was going to win that award in 2013. I guess he didn't. I think it was actually Mariano Rivera. So anyway, <laughs> the, the point I was going to ask was, let's just pretend that Casimir had won. And I guess it doesn't matter because he showed up on the award voting. Scott Casimir finished third for the American League Comeback Player of the Year Award in 2013. That was after not pitching in 2012. Scott Casimir didn't pitch in 2017. He had hip and arm problems, but he's a flyer for the Braves. I mean, there's not a whole lot of bodies that are in his way for the rotation. Could Scott Casimir conceivably show up in the voting for another Comeback Player of the Year Award? <laughs> and has that ever happened before? <laughs> I mean, sure, he's he's eligible. He f- missed the entire season with a hip injury. So if he comes back and is good again, he'd be a good... I mean, who won it this year? This is... I don't even know. This <laughs> Let is, uh, me find out. Do you have any guesses? I Well, I read it, and then I forgot it instantly. So. Uh, okay, two former <laughs> Royals. Former And this is, by the way, this is something that we have drafted on this podcast before, I believe. We've drafted comeback player of the year candidates like heading into a season. So maybe we'll do that again. Uh, Oh, well, it was uh, Greg Holland was Mm -hmm. one of them, right? Yeah. Okay. And the other one... I don't know. Mike Moustakis. And ah. now that I look at this, eh, okay. He could so still t- be a royal. You never know. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so especially now that he won't be an angel. So it turns out mm-hmm. maybe this isn't so uncommon. In 2010, Francisco Liriano won the American League Comeback Player of the Year Award for the Twins. And in 2013, he won it as a member of the Pirates. So Francisco <laughs> Liriano has won it twice. Rick Sutcliffe has won it twice. Chris Carpenter, Andres Galarraga, Brett Saberhagen, Boog Powell, and Norm Cash have also won the award multiple times. So it turns out these players <laughs> have had multiple comebacks and in that sense i guess scott casimir would not be unique but still <laughs> yeah. something to watch casimir it's still unusual yeah i guess that sort of makes sense like if you're an injury prone player you have more opportunities to be the comeback player of the year otherwise if you're just uh, playing every year it's tough to be eligible for that award all right well do we want to say anything about many machado rumors which seem to have intensified a lot of buzz as we speak here on monday about something potentially happening this week if it's going to happen nothing concrete but it sounds as if maybe offers improved over the weekend teams got a little more serious about this the orioles got a little more serious about this okay well hold on let me let me just take a step back here i don't understand something here okay 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 1981 
Yeah. Richie Zisk won the Comeback Player of the Year award. That season, okay. he played in 94 games. He was worth 1.7 wins above replacement. Okay. The season previous, he played in 135 games. He was worth 0.6 wins above replacement, but he went from a 123 OPS plus to 140, and he played less? <laughs> what did he... Huh. What did he come back from? He was That's... fine. So wait, this is 1981 is when he won? And yeah. 1980? Huh. Now, I know the 1981 season was shortened, but right. he still played nearly a full season in 1980. Yeah, did he come back from something off the field that is not reflected in this? He didn't come back from anything. <laughs> um, Randy Jones, hold yeah. on. Randy Jones so, won the Comeback Player of the Year award in 1975 when he had a 2.24 ERA. He was 25 years old, and the season before that he had a 4.45 ERA. But the season before he threw 208 innings. He didn't come back from anything either. <laughs> yeah, his uh, Richie Zisk's Baseball Reference bullpen page says he was named Comeback Player of the Year in 1981, even though he had hit well the previous year, and his rise in batting average was largely a function of his having moved to a better hitting park. So, I mean, his rise in batting average wasn't even all that impressive. <laughs> he went from 290 to 311. Huh. All right. I don't know. Well, this is a stupid award. That's, uh, yeah, someone must have gotten robbed in 1981 with the Comeback Player of the Year award. <laughs> anyway, okay, Manny Machado. So yeah. we have, what, the, the White Sox are a, a weird team who have been reported to have checked in, and the Diamondbacks mm-hmm. have also yes. checked in. I don't know if there have been any developments over the course of us recording this now, but the White Sox are a weird fit because they are bad, and Machado has one more year of control, and the White Sox, I think the idea is that the White Sox would trade for Machado under the condition that they could have a window to talk contract extension with which Manny Machado would never grant them because he would I'm sure love to hit free agency so I don't know how many players who are as good as Machado get to this point one year away from free agency and decide now I'm going to sign a long-term contract Machado wants to hit the market I would be right floored if some team were able to extend him now so I can't imagine the White Sox would make any sense unless they traded for Machado and then they traded Machado almost immediately to the Yankees mm-hmm. which would yeah. make sense to me And there are some recent reports now that says that maybe it is more likely that the Orioles would greenlight a trade to the Yankees because before it had been reported that they would never do such a thing and they wouldn't even trade him to a team that they thought would trade him to the Yankees. Anyway, now there's a couple sourced reports here that seems to say the opposite. So it is possible that Machado will end up with the Yankees. And in that case, we can revisit our Yankees discussion from (laughs) earlier in this podcast because I think they would be more of a juggernaut if they added Machado to a team that currently has no third baseman, basically. So, yeah. As far as the Diamondbacks go, they make some sense. I think the Diamondbacks front office looks at them as still a short-term organization. The way that the front office has spoken in some press reports in the, over the past few months has conveyed that they are concerned about the future of the organization. Now, I don't know how replacing Jake Lamb with Manny Machado makes that better, but I don't know. Maybe they see Machado as a shortstop and then that frees them to do whatever they want with Cattell Marte, etc., etc. Still doesn't feel like the Diamondbacks or the White Sox make a whole lot of sense as Machado's destination. I would never pick them first or second on my list. The Yankees, of course, making all the sense in the world, but it is... I don't want to say it's good to see the Orioles now favoring a rebuild because I don't think that baseball wants teams to drop out of competitiveness but Mm -hmm. it's I guess it's good to see the Orioles acknowledging their position uh, that position being that they are bad 
and <laughs> other teams are very good and they are extremely unlikely to be good in 2018. I saw the recent Zips depth charts projections of the Orioles on Fangraphs, and this is Dan Zimborski's project, and the posts are run by Carson Sistuli. But anyway, the Orioles' starting rotation in that depth charts was uh, Kevin Gosman, three wins above replacement, Dylan Bundy, three wins above replacement, and the other three rotation slots were zeros. So the Orioles need a whole lot of help, and they're not going to get it. They are a bad baseball team that is not in a position to get better, so it makes sense for them to move Machado. You could say that it would have made sense for them to move Machado a year ago. It's very easy to say that now. But this will be, as we discussed, I think, last week, this will be really interesting if he does get traded, and it looks like he could get traded this week. This will be very interesting because it's so uncommon to see a player this good get moved with one final year of team control. Mm-hmm. And so we will he will help us establish some sort of precedent for when this happens in the future because Machado is a very good, I guess I would call him a second tier player. Maybe he belongs in the first year. I really don't know. Last year kind of threw a, a wrench in the works. But mm-hmm. for a player this good, I think people will be surprised by the somewhat limited return that uh, the Orioles get in exchange for him just because there is only so much value you can provide in in one season. But I mean, when you sell Machado, then where do you go from there? I saw a report on MLB trade rumors that like the Orioles untouchables were, I forgot the first one, but then there was Trey Mancini and Michael Gibbons. It's like, what are you (laughs) doing? That's the saddest list of untouchables. (laughs) Let me, I got to figure out the first one. Orioles untouchables MLB trade rumors. Let's just uh, just give this a gander. Oh, man. Okay, so Jonathan's scope I can kind of understand, I guess. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, so this is the first bullet point from an entry from Sunday. This is a post written by Connor Byrne linking to a pair of articles from Rock Kabatko of MassInSports.com. It's unclear how many untouchable players the Orioles have, but second baseman Jonathan Scope, outfielder Trey Mancini, and reliever Michael Givens are among them, an executive from outside the organization told to Kabatko at the winter meetings. Come on. <laughs> so Scope has two ARB years remaining. Maybe they try to extend him, so whatever. He's young, he's talented, that's fine. Trey Mancini is like, he's just, he's not that, why why beat around the bush? He's not, he's not very good. And Michael Givens is a reliever who's right. not like, whoa, he's like Kenley Jan. No, he's he's a Michael Givens level reliever. I like him. I think he's interesting. No such thing as an untouchable relief pitcher <laughs> for a team that is rebuilding. That is just yeah. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll return to this soon, I'm sure. But uh wanted to mention it. It is currently the probably biggest story in baseball because there are no other stories in baseball. So... We will end there, and we'll be back with emails next time. The Orioles are reportedly trying to acquire Danny Duffy. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) What? What is this process? (laughs) (laughs) Their problem. All right, future past Ben here. I realized after we recorded that there's another deer antler tie-in to baseball. It was just six years ago, August 2011, Tom Verducci reported at Sports Illustrated that baseball sent a warning to its major and minor league players to stop ingesting deer antler spray. Deer antler spray was evidently an alternative to steroids. The velvet from immature deer antlers includes insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1, which mediates the level of human growth hormone in the body and is banned by MLB and the World Anti-Doping Agency among others, for its muscle-building and fat-cutting effects. Cannot be detected in urine tests. 
One manufacturer touts its benefits, anabolic or growth stimulation, athletic performance, and muscular strength and endurance. Didn't say anything about rubbing bats, though. That's the real performance enhancer, and it's still legal. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who've already done so include Daniel Nerviani, Asher Jatel, Andrew O'Hara, Jack Wyland, and Chris Wickey. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild and rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you soon. The gown is-